Hey there, it's Tony Beadle. Welcome to the Berkeley Technology Law Journal podcast. In today's podcast, we speak with Matt Kaplan, a partner in Cooley's San Francisco office. We discuss his area of expertise, trade secret law. This area of law is really helpful for startups and new businesses because it's a low-cost way to protect intellectual property. Enjoy the show. All right. Thank you so much for joining us, Matt Kaplan. Matt is a partner at Cooley's Litigation Group in San Francisco, and one of his focus areas is trade secrets. Could you tell our audience why you became a lawyer and what was attractive about trade secrets? Sure. Um, when I was sort of about halfway through college, I was an undergrad at UCLA. I was a political science major, and I was just trying to figure out what I might actually want to do with my life and my degree. Um, I, I thought law school might be a good option. Um, didn't really have any lawyers in my family or anything, so other than sort of what you see in the movies and TV, didn't have much of an idea of what a lawyer actually did day to day. So there was a little law firm in, in Westwood just down the street from UCLA's campus, and it was two lawyers, and they had been at a much bigger firm over the years. They used to work with uh, Marshall Grossman in the 80s. Um, he's sort of a famous entertainment lawyer, and he does a lot of other things, too. Um, they had sort of branched off and done their own thing. So they had this experience of working with some pretty big firms, at least for from the 80s standards, um, and now sort of just focusing on their, their litigation practice and what they actually wanted to do. Um, so they were really good about letting me tag along, go to court with them, go to depositions and that sort of thing. And that gave me the experience to actually see what someone who does litigation for a living does every day. And sort of the light went off. I'm like, oh, I, I could see myself doing that. Um, so that was really the impetus for me to, to go to law school in the first place. Um, in terms of getting interested and starting to work on trade secret cases, that's really been a, a function of, of Cooley more, more than anything and the types of clients that the, the firm works with. Um, Cooley is really known for working with emerging companies, helping them grow and sort of really is part of the, the fabric here in, in the, the valley in the Bay Area. And so you get the opportunity working with these exciting new technology companies to see them grow, help them develop their products. And then on the litigation side, um, usually when a company's sort of gotten successful, that's when you the, the lawsuits start coming out. So we've got this built-in in client base just from sort of being one of the go-to firms here in the Bay Area, working with high-tech companies and sort of helping them solve their problems. So what is a trade secret? So legally speaking, a trade secret is something that a company actually maintains uh, in secrecy and it derives value uh, from the fact that it's secret. So in, in practice, it's, it's a little harder than that because most companies don't look at their products and technology that way. They're trying to do the, the best they can, create the best technology, create the best product. Um, and the idea of a trade secret is, is more of a, I think, legally driven concept. Um, but you do see companies protecting things. Everyone's got their sort of basic NDA and confidentiality agreements. Uh, they know to tell their, their employees what they need to keep secret and, and that sort of thing. But, uh, but at the end of the day, it's, you know, a, a cool invention or something new that, you know, is proprietary to a company and they, they treat it that way. And so you mentioned earlier Cooley works a lot with startups and emergent tech companies. Why is trade secret something that's important or something that's useful for those types of folks? So I think from a practical perspective, it's important to 
for these companies when they're working on new concepts, new technologies, to, to know that they have to keep it secret, whether or not they want it to be a, a trade secret. Um, it, it's important because a lot of times you'll have a patentable in, invention, uh, but getting patents and patent protection, not just in the U.S., but anywhere around the world that you're going to be operating is sort of a, a lengthy and time-consuming process. So until you make the decision as a company that you actually want to patent the idea, um, you should really think long and hard about what steps you're taking to make sure it remains sort of your own and proprietary technology. And is this pretty much interacting with patent law for the most part that you see in terms of other types of intellectual property, or is this something that's also relevant to things like copyright with computer programs? Um, so it's a lot less relevant to, to copyright, especially in terms of computer programs. There is a federal preemption of trade secret claims uh, for copyrighted material. Um, so it's more of the, the intersection of, of patents and other IP sort of as if you look at a sort of a, a continuum, you could obviously always keep something secret and, and maintain it as, as a trade secret. But it's sort of the same idea that either it's something that's patentable, but you've made the decision to keep it secret and not patent it, um, or it's something that could actually be secret and valuable, but might not hit all the boxes for patentability. The unpatentable. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, but it's something that's unpatentable, but still novel, unique, uh, and valuable to a company. What's an example of that? So a manu something like a manufacturing technique is sort of the best example of things that you know, you could implement a unique manufacturing technique, save yourself a lot of time and money, but it might not be something that sort of checks all the patent boxes. Or a recipe. A recipe is another thing. Um, recipes aren't something, you, for the most part, you can't even get copyright or patent protection for a, for a recipe, but you can keep that secret in, like, uh, Coca-Cola and KFC. When you're counseling clients and you realize that there is a trade secrets issue and we need to start thinking about trial, how do you start simplifying this story for trial and making sure that people can understand what trade secrets are? And so it, that really starts from day one from, from the attorney's perspective. Um, and I think it's, it's a little bit different in how you're going to approach that question if you're representing a plaintiff or a defendant. Uh, from the plaintiff side, you're going to get in there and start working with the company before you've even made the decision to file a lawsuit. Um, so you have the opportunity as a plaintiff to frame what exactly the trade secrets are, and you're going to get to define them. Uh, so the best way to do that is, one, see how, how the company actually treats the, the information, how they protect it, what they think is actually new or unique about it, and build your case around that, um, and make sure that the decisions you've made in terms of how you define the trade secret are something that you can actually support um, through evidence and, and testimony. On the defense side, you're going to have a, a couple different ways to look at it. One, you're going to look at how the plaintiff has defined the trade secrets and try to see if you can make anything of that in terms of how they've defined it. Is it actually a secret? Um, did the plaintiff treat it like a secret? Um, have they been putting it out there themselves? And then two, you get to tell your own story. How did you get from point A to point B? Because they're essentially accusing some sort of product of yours usually. So you get to tell all the people who worked on that product, how much time, energy, and effort you spent building that, and you didn't have the benefit of the, the plaintiff's technology. So how effective are trade secrets for protecting complex code, like artificial intelligence? 
So in that sense, if it's something that you haven't gotten a, a copyright on or it wouldn't be preempted, it, it is a very effective way to protect uh, things like code. Um, and the, the interesting thing with that is most companies have their, their version control systems, uh, whether they use GitHub or something else, but you essentially have cloud-based access these days or your own proprietary server-based access to, to your code. Um, so in terms of whether or not it is a trade secret, you really have to look long and hard about who has access to the code base, who's able to make revisions and changes to your code base, and what you're doing as a company to really ensure the, the confidentiality of the, the code in the first instance. And with a lot of these newer technologies today, there's really serious implications with the technology and a lot of concerns for um, everyday people for their own safety. So, for example, driverless cars, which causes a lot of lawmakers to want to start to look under the hood and start to figure out what's going on with the code. So how can companies guard against accidental disclosures with these closely regulated trade secrets? Yeah, so that's actually a very interesting point, and that's where a lot of the work for the, the companies um, that we do work for comes from, and, and not just in the trade secret context. You have laws that have been on the books for you know decades, and you have very new quickly moving and emerging technologies, and those laws weren't meant to regulate um, what's actually going on. Um, so you, there's sort of a, a disconnect there. Um, and and in, to your question, in, in the trade secret context, um, I've actually been sort of surprised at how quickly a, a lot of the, both federal and here in California, the regulators have gotten out in, in front of this and have actually tried to create laws that apply to this new emerging technology. Um, in, in terms of maintaining the, the trade secret nature of any of the technology, I, I think usually any required disclosures to a, a government, you, you'd have a way to protect that. And if it's through legislation, you would hope that it gets built into the legislation, whether it's the actual legislation regulating um, the driverless cars or if it's through modification of the, the trade secret statutes to sort of ensure that a non-public disclosure to a government agency might be able to sort of maintain the protection you need if it's something that you're not going to have another way of, you know, patenting or otherwise protecting. Can you tell us a bit about the Federal Defend Trade Secrets Act in 2016 and how that's changed anything? Sure. It's um, the, the Defend Trade Secrets Act was passed or enacted last year, and it's based on the, the Uniform Trade Secret Act, and California's uh, Trade Secret Act is also based on, on the, the UTSA, and almost every state that has enacted trade secret laws is also based on, on the uniform statutes. So in terms of the substance, there, there's very little difference. Um, but in terms of where you choose to sue, it has had an impact because it allows you to more easily sue in federal court for trade secret claims. Uh, in terms of discovery, uh, that makes certain aspects of discovery easier when you're in federal court because um, you're able to essentially issue a subpoena anywhere in the contiguous unit or anywhere in the entire United States um, versus when you're in state court, you've got to jump through a lot more hoops to get information from third parties that are outside of the, the state where the, the lawsuit's filed. And how, how has that helped with such international companies that you've been working with? Um, so it hasn't really changed the, the framework for, for international litigation. Um, one of the trade secret cases I'm working on right now, the, the plaintiffs are British companies. Um, so we were able to force them to bring their, their current employees to, to California for their depositions. But when we deposed third parties and former employees, we had to go through the, the Hague Convention and get a British court to issue an order requiring them to show up for a deposition in London. 
right now, trade secrets is actually heating up in Silicon Valley, particularly with the litigation between Waymo, uh, Google's sister company, and Uber. Could you tell us about what trade secrets are involved with that case and what lessons are available for practitioners of trade secrets? Yeah, so it's a very very interesting case that I've been following for, for a couple of reasons. Um, so it's one of the sort of stereotypical examples where you'll see a trade secret claim. It's you have a former employee leaving Waymo, which was Google's self-driving car division, and then joining Uber to essentially create their self-driving car division. And so the parties, from what I've been able to gather from the public record, were sort of acute or Uber was acutely aware of sort of the the risks of having a, a trade secret type claim uh, when they they actually went through a very complicated transaction to actually acquire a company that employed Anthony Lewandowski, um, who was the former Google employee, um, rather than just hiring him directly. Um, but as part of that process, they actually had a, a third party Strauss Friedberg quarantine every last piece of hardware and software that the guy had in his possession almost. Including his personal computers. Including his personal computers. Uh, computers. It was some, it's, it's, I think, in the hundreds of devices and, and yeah. servers at this point uh, with the idea of preventing access or even any sort of argument that there, there was access. And sort of they did that initially on, on legal advice, and this dispute's actually playing out in I think it's actually Magistrate Corley's courtroom right now um, in terms of whether or not that's actually privileged um, because as one of the defenses in the case, Uber is going to say, hey, look, we made them put all of his electronic information, all of his computers, all of his servers in this black box, and he hasn't had access to them since he started working for, for Uber. And from the plaintiffs, they're like, okay, that's fine. If you want to do that, we get discovery into the whole process, what actually went in there, who decided what. And so that actually is one of the cru crucial issues that delayed the, the trial date uh, while they, they're, they're continuing to work that out. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see how that plays out. The the judge in that case, Judge Alsup, is uh, notorious for, one, bringing cases to trial quickly, and two, actually making the parties support their claims of sealing information. Um, so I, I think it has probably influenced how the, the lawyers have litigated the case in terms of what they're putting in their briefs and potentially into the public record, knowing that there's a, a chance that it might not be sealed. Um, so I, a lot of eyes are on that courtroom right now to see how this all plays out. As a defendant, uh, and, uh, I can say, <laughs> sorry, and I think the actual question you asked about what the trade secrets at issue were. Yeah. So I think, yeah, if, yeah, <laughs> if you, yeah. So yeah. So the, the sort of the key concept that they're they're litigating over right now is, is what they've called lidar technology, um, L I D A R, and that is sort of the the scanners and then the the software that almost all of the self driving cars are using now. If you've seen them driving around the, the, the streets here here in Berkeley or anywhere else in the Bay Area. Initially, they were sort of a, a standard car with this big rig on top of them, mm -hmm. with like it's like the Ghostbusters yeah, yeah, exactly, coming down the street, yeah. <laughs> rotating sensors and stuff. And so they've gotten a little more compact. But yeah, it's essentially you know how much of this lidar technology did Anthony Lewandowski develop while he was at Google, and how much is being used at Uber? And the, there's actually a really interesting story that actually led to the lawsuit in the, in the first place. Um, Somebody at one of the vendors that Google was using for some component of their lighter technology um, hadn't realized that Anthony Lewandowski had left Google, I think, and he had reached out to him after he'd started Uber. So he emailed Google thinking he was still working with the same folks, and he, that 
communication incorporated some of Uber's communications with the vendor that Google thought was their trade secret information. So that's, I mean, they were probably pretty wary of this guy leaving, going to Uber for hundreds of millions of dollars, but there's just this one email that set off the, this whole chain of investigation that led to the lawsuit. And so how do you advise companies that are dealing with these acquisitions of top talent and obviously the optics to this to your average jury member um, are, are pretty hard to overcome? Yeah, so, I mean, it's an, actually an interesting thing. You know, a lot of people, especially when they, they have a confidentiality agreement, when they leave a company, and you'll attest when you join a new company that you aren't bringing anything from your old employers that you're not supposed to do. Um, jurors are actually very sympathetic to those employees. Um, they don't like the idea that a company owns what you've learned or all of your hard work over those years. So they'll respect the intellectual property, they'll respect the confidentiality, but there, there's a very powerful idea to most jurors who are sort of everyday working people who sort of move from job to job, they learn things, they take advantage of that, that you can get sued over the idea that I learned something at one job and I'm implementing that in, in, in another job. So you could actually, you know, assuming you have a good story to tell, really use that to your advantage as, as a defendant. Like, I, I honor these confidentiality obligations. I didn't take this computer. I didn't take this device. I didn't access my email. But you don't actually control what I learned and how my brain works. Yeah. So how do you propose onboarding high-level talent from competitors? The biggest thing is to really, really make sure that they haven't brought anything with them from their, their former employer. And there's, there's only so much monitoring you can do, but you really need to make sure that even if it's a personal external hard drive or anything, that they aren't taking that and plugging that into their, their new work computer. So having really good employment policy is, is an, an onboarding that really stresses that, that sort of thing is sort of the best way you can sort of deal with that on the front end. All right. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Kaplan, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Um, is there any contact information, or do you tweet? Do you blog? Is there anything else that our listeners might want to know about you? Not, not much tweeting or blogging. Um, if you want to email me, it's mkaplan, C-A-P-L-A-N, at cooley.com, and you can find me on the, the Cooley website or, or LinkedIn as well. And, yeah, thank, thank you for having me. It's been fun, my first podcast. Thanks for joining us for today's podcast. This will be our last podcast for 2017, as we're going on break for law school. Look for our next episode in 2018. We'll discuss how new technology may change the rules of war. We are committed to bringing you interesting conversations involving the intersection of technology and the law. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please rate us and subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you found our podcast. The views expressed by podcast hosts and guests are their own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. The information presented is not legal advice, is not to be acted on as such, and may not be current, and is subject to change without notice.